Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. How can it be good for you to roll over in the morning and pick up your phone? Nothing ever good comes from your phone. Nothing. When was the last email that you got where you danced for joy? When was this call that you got at 7.30 in the morning from somebody saying, congratulations, Jamie, there's a Ferrari parked in your driveway? It doesn't happen. That is serial entrepreneur, venture capitalist, and author, Jamie Pride. And this is episode 235 of the Osher Ginsberg Podcast. Welcome to the Osher Ginsberg Podcast. I'm Osher Ginsberg, and this is my show. Hi, welcome. I'm glad you're here. This episode's with Jamie Pride. He's a really interesting guy. You can find him on Instagram, J-A-M-I-E-P-R-I-D-E. He has a hell of a story to tell, and I can't wait to get into it. Uh, If you're new, welcome. Uh, A little bit about me. My name's Osher. I work on television in Australia. I worked on radio for a very long time. I now work making this podcast every week, have done for the last five years. Uh, Sometimes in Australia, I'm on television uh, at the moment, hosting uh, a show where I count roses and deliver date cards. It's a bachelor thing. It's a lot of fun. A lot of people enjoy it. Um, I get to go to work and help people fall in love every day, and I get to make a show that help distract people from things that are they are finding uncomfortable in their day, which uh, is really nice to hear. I got a couple of emails this week saying, yeah, I was going through some shit with my mum, and in breaks coming out of the hospital room that she was in, we would turn on Bachelor in Paradise, and we were able to escape to the islands for a moment. And that's really nice. That's really bloody nice because that is a big reason that we make the show is to, uh, you know, offer you a release valve for 45 minutes if you don't can the ads <laughs> once a week. 
or four times a week if you're talking the last one. Look, here uh, on this show, that's what I do for, you know, mainly my money. Uh, but on this show, uh, every every week for the last 234 Mondays, I've been here having a conversation that you get to be a part of with someone that you might know, someone that you might not know. But each week, I guarantee that you will hear something that will resonate with you that'll make you go, oh, right. Well, that makes sense, doesn't it? Just something that'll hopefully make today a bit better than yesterday. That's the idea of the show, all right? So many other episodes to explore. There's a top 10 list happening on the Facebook group, and that is looking pretty good. Hello to everyone on the Facebook group. Thank you so much for joining. I did start a Facebook group so people, because there's a Facebook page, but it's not really a place where people can talk to each other. So I started a Facebook group, which you can find in Facebook, in the groups, and you search Osher Ginsberg Podcast, and there it is. There's some great chats going on there this week, a lot of great support, which is really nice to see people supporting each other through some shit. Uh, and recipes, which has been nice. Uh out of nowhere, but yeah, nice. Loved it. I guess I've been having a lot of plant-based people on the show lately, and um, yeah, some of the recipes look pretty damn good. I'm looking forward to getting a bit of time to getting into that cauliflower one, that's for sure. Just search for the Osher Ginsberg podcast in Facebook groups. Uh, there's an admin thing, but then I you know, see that you've applied, and I just hit yes, and then you're in. It's easy. I'm enjoying it. I'm enjoying interacting in there. It's nice to be there. A massive thank you to everybody that's pre-ordered the book. I'm writing a book. It's an interesting story about a formerly blonde-haired television presenter that, you know, went crazy, changed his name. Uh, well, the changed his name was before the crazy, but yeah, and then isn't, well, is trying not to be crazy anymore. That's the book I'm writing, and you can pre-order it. There's a link in my bio on Instagram or Twitter, but there's also osha.info is slash pre-order. That'll take you to the page where you can buy the book at a 21% discount. And look, it's really easy. If you email me the receipt, send us your email at gmail.com, I'll shoot you something special to personally say thank you for doing so. I've been sending out a couple of those special rewards to people this week. They've been a hit. That makes me very happy. And it's nice. It's nice to get to know each other because I'm, you know, sitting here in my office in my apartment and you're listening to this, doing whatever you're doing, but we have the ability to directly communicate to each other and and you're a part of my week and I'm a part of your week and we can be a part of each other's community. Isn't that interesting? We can do that now. I love it. Um it's a really personal book. It's a bit full on at the moment. I'm through the. I'm in the middle of the third round of editing, and when I see the pre-orders come in, it's like, well, shit. Okay, I better keep going, and because people trust through listening to this, and you know, seeing the kind of work that I'm already putting out there about what I'm writing about, that they trust that it's going to be worth it, and that it'll be what they want to read. So, it makes me want to keep writing it. So, thank you. Well, I've written it, but I'm just editing it, just polishing it at the moment. So, thank you. If you do um, pre-order it, do send me that uh, that email. What's the book about? Well, like I said, um, if you're new, hi, I'm Osher, and I have a different brain. I've been diagnosed with all kinds of acronyms along the way, uh, from PTSD to OCD, uh, generalized anxiety, social phobia. Some points in my life, it appeared that is I was almost on all of the medication that was available for everything, um, but at the moment. I needed those at the time to help me manage, but at the moment, the only drugs I'm on are eating very cleanly, working out every day, and the oxytocin that gets released when I'm in the loving embrace of my beautiful wife, Audrey. So that's what is happening. Um, Living life off meds is a, a skill that I'm learning how to get better at every day. 
Um, it's not something that you can just expect to happen and be okay with. You've got to work at it, and I'm working at it every single day. And so far, it's okay. But that's what's happening, and that's what I wrote a book about because I know I'm not alone. And in telling my story and trying to normalize the conversation about living with a mental illness or having experience with a mental illness, hopefully people that otherwise wouldn't have got help might get help. And that's why I'm writing the book. So, osha.is slash pre-order if you want to grab a copy. To check in with you this week, I'm doing okay. Not great. Okay. I told you last week that in the interest of being accountable, there was a bunch of things that I was committing to you that I would do. And uh, you know what? It's an ambitious list. It was an ambitious list of seven things. And of those seven things, I managed six and a half of them. But the top five were the scary ones, the really scary ones. The half, to let you know, the half was a bunch of blood tests I needed because I'm all about monitoring how I'm traveling now. I'm off. I'm not on so many medications. But one of the tests is only done on certain days at the collection center. So I had a bunch of vials taken, a bunch of vials taken, and then they said, oh, you've got to come back on another day. So that, that's tomorrow morning. So I've got to fast again and go in and do that. So that's the half. And number seven on the list was um, something I needed to do with my wife, Audrey, around a project that we're working on around the house. Uh, but she and I, we were flat out this week. We were like ships in the night. We didn't get time to sit down and do it together. So in the interest of accountability, there you go. I only got six and a half of the things done. But thank you because it was the first five things that were the scariest things. And because I was like, oh, shit, I'm going to have to talk on the podcast next week and tell you if I did them or not, it made me want to do them. And it was also on the Facebook group, people asking me, how's your list going? And that was cool to be accountable because accountability is important when it comes to getting uncomfortable things done. And it was also really helpful to to stack the list with the scariest things that I was super worried about getting them done first because those things were paralyzing me from doing anything else. And so I just did them. I just did them. They, they were mostly emails, emails that were scary to send, but I just wrote them read them, read them again, and hit go. But not doing, I was so scared of hitting send on them, it was stopping me from doing everything else. But once I told you that I was doing it, I had to do it. So I did it. And now it's not scary anymore. Here I am on the other side of that fear. Remember Fraser Bailey talking about what's on the other side of that fear? Well, here, we're on the other side of the fear. The things that I was worried about that were stopping me from doing everything, they're done. And now we're here. Huh. What else is on the other side of the fears that I've got at the moment? That's curious, isn't it? That's a curious question. So thank you for that. Thank you for helping me get those things done this week. So let me ask you, what are you putting off? Who in your life can you be accountable to? If you need something to get done, you just tell one other person you're going to do it, give yourself a deadline and then execute. Just do it promise you that on the other side of doing it, it's not as frightening as you think it is. And that on the other side of doing it, there's the freedom from the shitty feeling of not doing it. <laughs> it's odd, isn't it? If you need, jump on the Facebook group. And, you know, there's plenty of people there. We'll, we'll help you get there this week, I'm sure. Get the fears out of the way. Lean into it. Remember I was telling you about that book I read, um, Emotional Agility, Susan David. It was her. She wrote, courage is fear in motion. So have courage this week. Have courage. 
A big thank you this week to everybody that sent me a podsy of where they were listening to the show, P-O-D-S-I-E. Just send me the email, sendosher email at gmail.com or tag me in a DM and Instagram, just wherever you're listening to the show. I always get a kick out of finding out where you're listening, people listening all over the world, people listening in, in hospital beds, people listening, looking after their kids, driving around the block while they're trying to get their kid to fall asleep in the back of a car. That's pretty good. Sorry about the swearing. Um. Also, a massive thank you as a couple of people threw a few shekels my way. Uh, podcasts are free to listen to. This is a free podcast for you to listen to, but it's not a free podcast to make. I do need to pay Andy and I do need to pay Haley, who both produced this show with me. And uh, your contributions very much help that. Patreon.com slash Osher, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash O-S-H-E-R. Thank you so much to the people that put a few bucks this way. Even like a, a buck a month. Well, you know, if this podcast is worth 25 cents a week, a buck a month. That will help me to no end. So thank you from the bottom of my heart for doing that. So I've got to tell you, I'm excited about today's guest. Jamie Pride is a serial entrepreneur, venture capitalist, and author, and he's on a mission to help shift the needle on startup culture. You can find him on Instagram at Jamie Pride, J-A-M-I-E-P-R-I-D-E. Now, we've all heard the Cinderella story when it comes to startups. Two people create an iPhone app. They sell their business to Google for 20 million bucks after 18 months. Now everyone's taking baths in Lamborghinis and Bitcoin, taking Uber jets to Burning Man for the weekend. But that's not the real story. 92% of startups fail. Jamie has a very real and personal experience of failure. Jamie was formerly a partner at the consulting firm Deloitte, and then he was the CEO of realestate.com.au. He rode a rocket ship of success to the stars. He founded more than six technology startups, raised over $16 million in funding, and even listed his HR startup Refined on the Australian Stock Exchange in 2015. Refined listed and then went through the roof. In less than, in just over six months, just over six months, the stock shot up to a market capitalization of over $200 million. And pretty much overnight, dropped to $20 million. He had investors who'd poured millions of dollars into his business, turning up to his house, calling him up, giving him death threats. That's heavy. Jamie, looking for an escape, self-medicated, and his health plummeted before he hit a very dangerous rock bottom, both mentally and physically, which he does go into in this conversation. Now that Jamie's on a path of recovery, he is committed to preventing other startup founders from going through what he went through by helping them not only understand the astronomical odds stacked against them, but also to help founders build resilience so that they can fail and then learn from that failure, then fail again, maybe even again, until they succeed and build something that helps the community, helps them, helps us all. He's written a brilliant book on the matter. It's called Unicorn Tears. It's out where you buy books. It focuses um, on a lot of process stuff, but also focuses a lot on mental health and resilience in the startup scene. It's well worth a read, even if you're not you know, going to go try and start a startup company, but it's well worth a read if you're an independent business person because there's a lot of valuable content in there. I certainly resonated with the attribution of your product's success to your self-worth. Uh, which is a, a real key to the work that he's doing. He and I discussed that 
in depth in this conversation. We may not all be coders, we may not all be geniuses, but all of us have ambitions, all of us have goals, and all of us can learn from Jamie's story. He has a particularly excellent philosophy when it comes to morning routines and the use of his phone. I have certainly changed my game since I spoke with him. I hope what he says resonates with you as well. He's got some wisdom around that. Enjoy this conversation with Jamie Pride. Jamie, welcome. Thank you. Good to be here. Thank you for thank you for coming to be here, coming to to uh, to our humble apartment. Because uh, what you have to talk about is is uh, very important, I think. Um, but I would have given a bit of a preamble before you know we start talking, uh, so mm. people will know why you're here. Yep. But I, I think your story. I think if people never start a startup, mm-hmm. that's fine. But I think there's so many parallels about you know the idea of aiming for a dream. And then, you know, the expectations that one has mm. around the execution of that dream and then what to do about it when it doesn't go right. I think there's some parallels that a lot of people could get a lot out of Absolutely. from from your story. So let me let's just paint a bit bit of a picture. Um, mm. we are sitting right now in the delightful eastern suburbs of Sydney. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Pacific Ocean is is a few kilometers that way. Um, did this did you grow up anywhere near this place? Did you grow up far away? I did. I grew up in the eastern suburbs. I grew up in Coogee. Um, so I spent uh, my formative years in the housing commission projects of of uh, South Coogee. From the projects from man. the from North the, Maroubra, South Coogee. Yeah, what from, was that like? From South Coogee was uh, was an interesting place to grow up. Um, and uh, why so? What made it interesting? Uh, look, I mean, it's my 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 parents come from a pretty poor background and um, immigrated to Australia um, when my mum was sort of fourteen, and I ended up sort of growing up with a single mum, and so spent most of my time sort of there, and was fortunate enough to get a music scholarship and end up going to a private boys' school. But um, yeah, my childhood was was happy, but uh, yeah, unusual, I guess. From what's it like? What's I mean, you don't obviously know. You're a kid. Mm. Everyone's got your life. When did you first realise that? Oh, my house is different from other kids' houses. Um, I actually remember I went to Waverley um, in in Waverley College, is where I went. It's a private boys' private school private, yeah, um, near East Westfield Bourne Junction. Yeah, anyone knows yeah. Where that is. It's uh, it was actually the brother school to my school up in Brisbane. Oh, there you go. Yeah, so Christian brothers. Yeah, you know, yeah. sons of lawyers. Oh yeah. So I um I was there on of all things a flute scholarship, um, which is, is one of my favorite bands of all time. Uh, the most masculine instrument you can imagine going to a rugby playing boys' school and playing the flute. Um, so I had a great Great time at school, but I, I knew that when I turned up to tennis with a dodgy wooden tennis racket and some Dunlop volleys, and the other kids were showing up with AMF head graphite tennis rackets and Nikes, that I probably didn't have the same economic background. All right, but it didn't really make. I mean, I think all entrepreneurs have a bit of a chip on their shoulder, and that kind of fuels them. Um, and I love hearing entrepreneurs' early stories because it tells me a lot about sort of where they're coming from. So yeah. Conversely, I've met plenty who took a trust fund. That matured when they were eighteen and exploded it on some idea that they had. So don't worry, there's yeah. the other version. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'd love a trust fund if you. <laughs> <laughs> there, there is the other version. But when, like, was it? Did did you have sleepovers early? Did you start to, when you got to someone else's house? You'd be like, oh wow, this is different. Yeah, I never really fit in at school. Um, I just wasn't that sort of rugby playing sport jock kind of guy, right? So I was in the debating team and I was on the band for playing flute and playing chess. And all of those, you know, amazing things. And when you go to a pretty alpha male school. So I had a, f- a f- pretty small friends group. It sounds very similar that you and I have an extraordinarily similar um, uh, 
the high school experiences because I was also the, in the I had almost a little laminate, laminated note to get me out of PE because yeah. I was no fucking way. I was not interested in playing rugby. I just wanted no. to play bass. I just wanted to play in, play yeah. in the band. Yeah. Um, what year were you a senior? Uh, 90, I graduated. So I finished school. I'm, so I'm 45, fuck. so 1973. Oh, I was fuck. born. So because we came down and we played with the Waverley Band. There you go. In 91. So okay. I just missed you. Just missed me. Just, just missed by, you. by a year. So yeah. then, and funny enough, uh, uh, you mentioned you played bass. I left school and never played the flute again and took, <laughs> I took up the bass. <laughs> That's awesome. I wanted to play in a band, not an orchestra. So yeah. uh, I'm like, you know, screw this. I'm gonna, uh, I'm gonna play a, you know, a pretty funky instrument. So yeah, yeah took took up the bass. So so high school on the debating team in an all boys rugby school. <laughs> I'm 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 guessing that lunch times and PE were about as much fun for you as they were for me. Yeah, absolutely. Like, so, i.e., not at all. I, I couldn't wait to get out of school. Yeah. Um, I couldn't wait to get out of school. I mean, a lot of people look back fondly at school. And, I mean, look, I think it's it's probably an interesting time of your life, but I was ready to go. Um, so as, as soon as uh, as soon as soon Year 12 came around, I was like, yep, I've got no desire to, you know, hang around here any longer. Um, I went back to a school reunion once, which was a bit of an odd experience, um, just sort of seeing people who I think a lot of the people I went to school with um, still look back as that that's the best time of their life. You know, I, I, I sort of met a couple of them and they're like, oh, you know, telling stories about, you know, how good it was. And I'm like, wow, it's sort of, for me, the better, the best days are always in front of you, not behind you. Mm. Um, so, yeah, it was, it was an interesting experience. I haven't been back to one since. Yeah, yeah I, went, I went to my 10-year one, started a food fight. <laughs> uh, yeah, I remember, and I, I remember being at that. Uh, we were talking before we started rolling about, about uh, my uh, my my weight loss mm. uh, journey, uh, which has been up and down over the years, I've been talking on the show about it a bit lately. And I remember being bullied for being one of the fattest kids. I was, I was, I was, I was three three fat boys in my high school. I remember being bullied heaps uh, for being the fat boy. And then at my ten year reunion, I was one of the three skinniest guys in the room. There you go. There was a bunch of guys that were just bottom lip, chest, you know. <laughs> that, that was just like full beer keg with legs on, and yep. still talking about the terrace nudgy match from '91. I'm like, yep. fuck, man, you're going through life and you've peaked in high school. <laughs> yeah, shit is not going okay no, for you, and it's gonna get worse. What? So, what was the next move? You know, did was I mean, you, you said you grew up with a single mom. Yeah, uh, was was it like okay, kid? Go make a living because yeah. groceries aren't free. No, my mum's um, always been pretty amazing in terms of just pushing me. Um, I was fortunate enough to scrape through enough marks to get into physics, Damn. Um, which is not a lot of marks, trust me, back then. Um, <laughs> but uh, I, I started off doing an applied physics degree at UTS. Um Partly because that's all I could get into, but partly it seemed interesting at the time. Fuck, and the easiest degree to get into is a physics degree? You're shitting me, Jamie. Uh, it was like 51 or something out of 100 to get into or what? something like that. I think there was a lot, a lot of calls for physicists at that point in time. Um, and I was always interested in computers as a kid, so I had I saved up. I don't know, this will date me, but I did a paper run, um, literally dragging around a paper barrow, you know, selling newspapers when I was a kid so I could afford to buy a computer. So I got an Atari 400, which was not the games machine, but the computer and started to sort of type out programs out of magazines on it and record them on a cassette deck. That's how I used that's, to do that. That's how back that's which how code were you using? Basic. I was using basic too, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then I always wanted a Commodore sixty four and I couldn't get one. And uh, and then ultimately I, I saved up enough to buy an Apple two C. And wow. so that was my pride and joy. And so spent 
probably a fair bit of time at school as a sort of computer nerd. And then when I went to uni, studied digital communications as part of my physics degree, um, worked out after about three years that I could make heaps more money, not at university. Um, and uh, at that point, there was a lot of money to be made in computer networking. And so I left and did some professional training in, in computers and the rest is history. So just quickly tell me, what was life like going from an educational environment and a social environment of being in that kind of all boys rugby school, uh, you know, kids who are grandfathered in kind of stuff. You're only here because your dad and your dad and his dad went uh, here to then being in the educational environment of university. What did that do for you and how much you wanted to be there? It was, um, I really enjoyed uni. Um, and I did everything but study. So I joined student political movements. I joined the student union. I created a dance party club. I created an outdoor adventure club. So all the things I didn't do at school, I ended up doing at uni. And so I spent probably three years partying and being involved in student politics. A lot of the people I was at uni with now are ministers and others. So Tanya Plibersek, who is uh, in the Labor Labor front bench is uh, somebody who I went to university with, and it's just interesting to see people sort of turn out to be professional politicians after seeing them as student politicians. Um, and uh, yeah, I had a great time at uni, um, yeah. and so there was a lot of freedom. I went to UTS, um, and so got involved in everything that I could get involved in. Right, it was, right. It was a bit of fun. So you really, you really flourished. And when on the on the on the outside of that, the, the time in history was um, a lot of businesses were moving from. It's hard to believe now, but businesses are moving from paper to digital communication oh. and, oh, we no longer have to send a courier across town. We can send this thing called email yep. and people wanting to connect the computers inside their office spaces and you were the guy that would be doing that. Yep. And, yeah. and it's amazing. Like it was done with coaxial cable at first. Like literally, I don't think people understand, well, they probably do, but how much things have changed even over the past 20 years in terms of technology. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, I did everything except study. Didn't want to be a physicist and, and worked out that I think my first job, I got paid like 32 grand or something. And that was like all the money in the world and going and installing networks. And so that was um, pretty much the beginning of my career as a technologist. As a technologist, that's a great word. Well, I'm just making it up. I love it. <laughs> When did you know it's an actual word? When did so? When did you decide to you know start creating something uh, of your own? Did you were you obviously you'd, you'd saved up and bought the Apple? Mm -hmm. So was Steve Jobs on the radar? Were you like oh, I want to be one of those guys? I want to start a startup? I never really thought about it like that. Like I I always have had an entrepreneurial drive. Um, so I've always been looking at you know how do you make money through business? And I never really fit in in the corporate world. Um, so even though I've had some really big corporate jobs, like running realestate.com.au and, you know, been working at Deloitte and others, um, I never really felt I fit in into those corporate environments. And so it was a bit of a misfit. And so entrepreneurialism for me was partly um, – by necessity, you know, I did not play well with others and sort of when I wanted to do my own thing. Um, and it was partly I felt that I loved – I was a bit of a control freak, I think, almost, and I loved the idea that the buck sort of stops and ends with you. And for me, that's where – I kind of fell in love with entrepreneurialism and it's it's a, it's been a tough journey, um, but I don't think I could do anything else. Yeah. I mean, I would if I had to, obviously, but um, for me, um, 
the 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 game of entrepreneurialism is more important than the outcome. Right. Were you, did you were there people around you doing, or did you just did you just bust out and just create a product and go? Yeah, I, I've always always I've had like six or seven you know different startups that I started, and and the first one was I was working in the UK with a couple of uh, people, and we were working for a company called Cisco, which was a networking company, and it was just before the internet bubble, and we decided to leave the company and start our own business putting in large telco networks for, for big companies. And um, about six months later, the the bubble burst and we, our company went under. Um, but that was probably one of the first businesses that I'd sort of started, um, you know, and we were looking at, you know, how could we do a better job than what the company we were working for was doing? Um, and all of the things like arguments over what colour the desks should be and like, you know, how many chairs do we need and who's going to be the vice president of paper clips and all of the – I love the trivia of, you know, entrepreneurial startups. But um, I look fondly back at, at – that's probably the first time I sort of took a leap and yeah. left the safety of the corporate world. Yeah. What did you learn from that first uh, that first failure, which was primarily, I guess, driven by factors way beyond your control? Yeah, I mean, look, I, I learned a lot about working with a business partner. And if you want to learn a lot about yourself, start a business. Because it's uh, somebody, I'm not a golf player, but my um, former business partner is, and he was saying that golf is like, you know, you spend six minutes striking the ball and like three hours thinking about it. Um, and entrepreneurialism is a lot like that, where you're in your head a lot, um, both positively and negatively. And I never really realized that. You think it's all about execution, but a lot of it is insecurity and how your self-worth is measured and whether or not you're thinking, are other people doing better than you? And you don't have this, I guess, corporate artificial scoreboard that you're used to. I mean, most people in the corporate world have got, you know, an external indicator, either it's money or title, or you can sort of see that you're advancing. And it's a bit of a, a bit of a kind of a, a mouse wheel, if you ask me, in terms of the, the artificialness of it. But you sort of leave that and you go, okay, well, I'm now sitting in my kitchen. And am I doing any good? Am I making progress? Um, are other people doing better than me? Is this all going to go to zero? Um, I just, you just a lot of self-talk. Yeah. Um, and then if you've got a business partner, then you've got those conversations as well. Um, and you know, it's really intimate. Um, your lives are close, you know, you're, you know, in people's houses, you're, you know, understanding what their kids are doing, their wives, mm. you know, all of those things that you don't necessarily get in the corporate world where it's sort of like pleasantries around the water cooler, like, hi, how are you doing? How's your family? Sure, I'm not listening. Mm. Um, whereas if you're not making money and you're in partnership with somebody, they're going, shit, I'm not making a house payment mm. and my wife's, you know, on my case or, you know, all of these things that you don't really sort of see. It's very raw. Did you meet your? You've been married for twenty two years. Did you meet your wife when you were uh, still in the corporate world, or were you already a cowboy nah, in the corporate world at uni? Ah, so you mm. met at uni, and mm. she saw you go from uni to stability to, and then I'm guessing you moved overseas yeah. together. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, how did you? Or what did you learn about managing the expectations of a, a life partner? Um, around, hey, by the way, I'm cutting the tires <laughs> to safety and I'm just going to swing on this vine. Don't know if there's going to be one to catch. Yeah, I think I've been really lucky. I, I, I don't even know what the bullet is. Like, this is a silver bullet. Um, I married a school teacher um, and uh, I guess I've been fortunate that my family's been ridiculously supportive um, and there's been some pretty big downtimes um, and some uptimes, but 
um, my family has never really pressured me to not do or do something particularly. So, you know, we moved overseas. I've moved, I've lived in four countries. I like, I moved to Singapore, then London. I was in Sweden for a bit. I was in Taiwan for a bit, Singapore twice. And we've moved our kids. Um, and our philosophy has always been, you know, what's a good life experience for them. And, you know, we've got to make decisions that are the right thing to do for us. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, 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 it's certainly not. So I think it's like, must be like marrying a musician where you sort of like, you know, the income is spotty and when it's good, it's good. And when it's not, it's not. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's always been, I've always felt guilty about it to, to a certain degree. Um, partly, you know, there's a level of responsibility as a father and as a husband that you go, you know, I'm the sole breadwinner of the family, a very traditional kind of model. And you feel responsible um, when you have a business failure and it kind of increases the stakes, mm. um, which I never really thought about until, you know, I had a couple of really big losses. When you look at the other people that you've been in business with over the years, mm. have you seen relationships suffer because of downturns? Yeah, I think um, I've seen a lot of things. Um, I, I see a lot of drug and alcohol abuse with, with entrepreneurs um, and them – essentially numbing out, you know, the pain. And I think that has an impact on their families. Um, so whilst, you know, you can talk about that separately as an issue, you know, entrepreneurs are – a lot of entrepreneurs, that's a big generalisation, but a lot of entrepreneurs are very all in. You know, you've got to be passionate about what you're doing. And when you're that passionate about what you're doing, you ascribe a lot of your self-worth to your project, right? So you become your business and it's hard not to. And so when it's going great, the highs are high and the lows are low. Yeah. Um, and, you know, if you bring that home with you or if you bring that into your relationships, um, both at work or at home, you know, you become a very, um, I guess, um, toxic person at times or unpredictable. Yeah, but uh, just the very nature of being so personally involved in it in, and just only in, in my experience, I, I did dabble in the startup scene when I lived mm. in Los Angeles. I went up to San Francisco a few times fundraising and, and, and things like that. But um, there's another story as to why that didn't work out and that's for another time. Uh, but what I learned was that products and ideas are products and ideas and anyone can come up with products and ideas. But being so personally invested in the product or the idea is almost a necessity because you're sitting across the table from someone pitching a thing that doesn't quite exist yet, but essentially you're pitching your ability to deliver it, all right? Absolutely. So you're throwing you, everything you are, everything you believe about the world, everything you believe in how you can deal with adversity at this person hoping they'll go, yes, I'll give you $400,000. Yep. Let's go. So it's mm -hmm. kind of hard not to have that. It, it's a paradox because um, on one hand, you know, I say to founders or entrepreneurs, you've got to do what you love and you and, and part of being resilient um, as an entrepreneur is to do something that you feel passionate about and that, you know, you're very purposefully driven. Um, but then that means that when that doesn't go well, it's very personal. Um, the other thing is, I think you've nailed it, which is you can't not put your own reputation on the line. Like I sit in front of people and I say, back me. Yeah, they, we've got this idea, but you know, you're really, you know, I'm sort of cashing my chips in and saying, yeah, it's, it's me and my ability to execute on this. And when I talk to entrepreneurs about failure, which I've been doing a lot about recently, um, it's actually not the economic loss that is the failure 
piece that hurts them the most, it's disappointing other people. And so if I describe the fear of failure, um, most entrepreneurs sort of say, I fear failure not through going broke or potentially the embarrassment or being isolated. I fear that I'm going to disappoint my spouse because they made sacrifices so I could be an entrepreneur or I'm going to disappoint my investors because they put money behind me or I'm going to disappoint the team that's working with me because our project failed and now they're all out of jobs. And it's that if I speak to entrepreneurs and get really below the surface about why they fear failure, they fear disappointing other people. And that's the biggest driver, I think, for why they don't want to talk about it, why it's stigmatized, um, and, and a whole bunch of other things that they then bury inside them, then manifest out in either mental health issues, physical health issues, or otherwise. So let, let's just kind of paint the picture a little bit about, I mean, what's something like 90% of all startups? 92. 92% of all startups fail. Mm-hmm. So let's paint the, just so people can, if people have never been around this, this world, uh, mm-hmm. people who kind of like, oh, I've suddenly got this product on Kickstarter, but they have no idea how it, you know, you know, happened, happened. Let's, let's go from the, let's say two people meet, um, let's, you know, understand that, you know, it, it could be, a, a two, two women, two men. Um, I don't know. They meet at a, a, a they're at a fucking cryptocurrency meetup. I don't know where they are. <laughs> you know, they're having beers sometime. Uh, they meet at some sort of incubator weekend. Yep. Uh, and it's almost like a relationship, isn't it? It's well, like it's, the, it's the more... love affair begins. Yep. You know what the world needs? The world needs this. I believe so too. Mm-hmm. I can code it. You can sell it. Yep. What is the classic story that that, that happens when these, these two people meet? Yeah, so um, that's exactly what happens and, and you kind of then can go down a couple of different paths. The first one is the business itself and so part of that is, you know, how do you take this idea, which is frankly not very, it's not worth very much. I mean, the biggest mistake I think that most founders make is that they think that their idea is the be all and end all and the idea is the least important part, but it's the seed that grows into the tree that becomes the startup. Um, then you are in this honeymoon period, so their relationship is also, you know, partly the biggest driver for failure or success, right? In terms of a, in terms of an entrepreneurial co-founding, and so you know you're going to spend 23 hours a day with this person. It's so exciting though, because oh, well, you know, know you're in that moment. You're in mm-hmm. the and we're going to be driving Lambos. Yeah, you know, absolutely. But and one of you's coding the yep. whole time, absolutely. and the other one's hustling and building decks and making yeah. PDFs and, and doing. Then, and then reality sinks in. And so what's what's the reality? Tell me. I mean, let's, re- let's, let's paint yeah. it out. I mean, the reality is that 92% of fail within three years, and the biggest reason why they fail is that there's no market need for the product that they bring. And, um, you'd, ah. and, you, and you'd think that's pretty self-evident, but, like, the reality is, is that um, what you think is a good idea, the market may not. Um, and so, you know, the definition of a startup is it's a temporary organization in search of a scalable, profitable, repeatable business. Um, and, you know, Reid Hoffman says it's like jumping off a cliff and building a plane on the way down. Sometimes you build the plane and sometimes you hit the ground. Um, and so, um, you know, I see some really common mistakes that are made by, by, um, I guess, green entrepreneurs, and that's getting better. I think entrepreneurs are getting more educated into a mechanical process or a a more rigorous process for creating an idea and testing that idea in the market to see if there is a a customer. Um, but the other side of that is is the dynamic between two, three, four people. I mean, I've worked by myself. I've worked with one other co-founder, two or three. I've been in various combinations. And, you know, the dynamic, it's essentially a marriage. So the dynamic between your strengths and weaknesses, your own insecurities, you know, how you deal with conflicts, um, who's going to be the front person, who isn't, you know, it's like a band. 
Um, and as you know, with bands, most bands break up. And, you know, that's the, that's a common factor. The two big issues I see, um, when we talk to founders and we provide them with peer support is, you know, they're struggling to get what we would call product market fit, which is, does somebody want to buy my product? And the other one is co-founder relationships, which is, you know, I'm doing more work. They're not doing work. I'm the brains behind this. I'm the money. I'm the whatever. Um, and so that starts, the cracks start to appear and, if the founder themselves isn't in a good place or the co-founding relationship isn't in a good place, your business is dead um, in one form or another. It, you can't – a good idea or a good business won't make up for a shaky founder or a shaky co-founding relationship. It's interesting that you say it's like a marriage because in my experience of having observed a few people go through this journey, um, in the analog to – the sex and the exciting sex that you have at the start of any, you know, romantic relationship mm. with a man and woman, two men, two women, um, that can kind of spack filler over a lot of stuff yep. for quite a while. Yep. Uh, but eventually that stops working mm -hmm. and you actually have to kind of face up to the fact that, oh, this person does things that really shit me. Yep. Um, <laughs> in the same way, when you start something and maybe it's you and, and, and a, and a co-founder and, you, you know, you are, you're sitting next together at a football game or you knew each other from school or you've come up with this idea, um, the moment even the smallest amount of angel investment money comes in, mm -hmm. that's almost like the sex, isn't it? Because things start to get exciting. You go by yep. a ping pong table. You're like, fuck yeah, yeah, yeah totally. We're on. It's over. It's amazing. We're away. Let's get by air on chairs all around. Let's go. Yes, let's go to Office Works. Yeah. Fucking exciting. Let's Instagram <laughs> this shit. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but in, in, a, in a way, you know, what can, you know, investment money uh, that comes in from angel investors and then, mm -hmm. you know, probably like uh, earlier seed investors, that can kind of – smooth over some of these problems can't completely, it completely completely and and i and i i just wrote an article recently talking about how i don't think money is the answer and in fact i think early capital can can sink a business um because it doesn't solve the underlying business problem if you've got um a relationship issue you know money's going to potentially make that worse and, and delay the inevitable difficult conversations and if you've got a weak business idea and it's funded um then often that will buy you time um but the business idea is still weak um, and so you've sort of in this sort of delusionary zone where you kind of go, everything's going great. And so the biggest failure point is actually not ideas that don't get off the ground. It's ideas that get that first piece of funding and then blow up. Right. Um, they don't get an, a follow-on piece of funding or the business never sees the light of day because either the founders nuke it or the, or the market nukes it. Um, but one of those two. You've, you've raised a, a lot of money over the years for your various business ventures. You've yep. raised money for things that have worked and you've yep. raised money for things that have not worked. Yes. Um, what is it like being the person that just a few, sometimes just a few weeks ago, mm -hmm. had gone into a meeting, pitched a person, got 10, 20, 100, half a million, a million dollars uh, for, for, you know, this idea and then what's it like being on the other end of the phone call when the investor's calling up going, so how are things going? It's terrible. Um, I mean, my biggest failure was $200 million and, um, you know, the market cap of the company went from 200 to $1 million. And that's a lot of hard conversations with investors. It's death threats. It's investors coming to your house. It's getting hammered in the media. It's, um, yeah, and, and look, it's 
Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Actually, it's my mother-in-law losing money, right? So it's, you know, some pretty difficult Christmas conversations. So it's it's unbelievably personal. Um, and I think, you know, you can't help but feel... Um, a level of responsibility, even though there's a lot of other factors and all those things, but it's, um, it's shit. But, you know, again, I've rung investors and said, by the way, you know, the market cap's just gone up by a hundred million and like everybody's sending you Dom Perry on, right? So, you know, as they say, you know, success has many fathers, but failure is an orphan. And, um, you know, I, I've felt that many times, both on the way up and on the way down. And, and I thought it would get better actually, but I'm 45 and, and the last one really caught me unawares in a sense that um, I wasn't physically, mentally, or emotionally ready for it. And um, and because it caught, caught me so off guard, um, it had a pretty big personal impact to me. But I was at a place probably about a year and a half ago since then, and I've had a lot of time to reflect. And it's been um, really eye-opening in terms of just understanding how other people deal with their own failures as well. Like So they'll invest in a company – and then won't blame themselves, they'll blame you for that investment. So, you know, I had an investor recently come to me and said that they lost money on on a public company. And I said, well, do you go down to the stables and punch the horse in the face when the horse doesn't win the race, you know, or do you blame yourself for betting on the wrong horse? Um, You know, there's some interesting investment psychology generally, but yeah, it's very personal. So that must have been like, can you, can you paint a little bit of the picture of, you know, building up to the, the the 200 million market cap. What was the ride on the way up like? Um, like drugs. Like it was just unbelievable. Like it was um, the highest of high. Um, you know, we were making $10, 30000000 million a day at one point. Um, and, you know, the... You in know, investment money or in paper money, yeah, oh. on real, real, real money. So, um, well, not well. You can't eat shares, as a wise man once said to me. Um, but yeah, in real money, and um, I'd never seen anything like it. And um, you know, you're making a lot of people money, um, and so you know they're sending you champagne and dinners, and you know you're everybody's best friend on the way up. Like you can do no wrong. Um, and I got really nervous actually towards the end where I'm like, this is just going too fast. Um, and so when it came back. Wait, 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 wait a second. Uh, tell, uh, tell me about obviously every every wave breaks. Yeah. So what were the moments? Like did you get an inkling that this, oh, something's not right? What was your first clue that something um, not might really. not be right? I mean, I was standing on the on the, um, on the the floor of my, um, as you do stand on floors, I was in my hotel room in Hong Kong at the time at about, 
$196 million of market cap. And um, because of the differences in timings between the Australian and, and um, Hong Kong markets, I was like, um, I'd just woken up and the Australian market had been open for three hours and the market cap had dropped $50 million in like three hours, right? And, um, you know, like I had like a million messages on my phone. But up until that point, um, you know, we'd had – retraces and the stock has sort of gone up and up and then it come back and up and up but we felt that it had support and we knew it had to level out but we never thought it would come off completely and yeah. so yeah it was um like i remember like it was yesterday like absolutely remember standing in my hotel room in hong kong as i was on a road show with my stockbroker at the time looking at getting more investment into the company and um just the world opened up and um, there was just a huge amount of selling, and we then you just you're in damage control permanently. I mean, your job is not to run the company at that point in time; it's to manage investors and media and markets and a bunch of other things. Yeah. And yeah, I was not equipped at all to do that. If you had to look uh, to, obviously, you've had a lot of time now to post mortem that situation. Mm. But what factors do you think led to that? Uh, that- we, sh- we shouldn't have listed the business. I would suggest um, it was a it was a calculated risk to list the company early and it, uh, on the way up it looked like the calculated risk paid off um, and I think um, from my perspective there was a lot of inexperience on our part in terms of managing you know sort of expectation and a bunch of other things the business itself was no different to any other early stage tech startup at the point in its life that it was and so there was a fair bit of transparency around that but look you know there were a bunch of mistakes made around pricing and product and a, you know a million things that I would do differently now um, but in terms of managing the market once you list your company on the asx it's out of your control to a certain degree you know that's a secondary market that people then buy and sell the stock at their decision and it's a it's just basically a sentiment gauge on how people think your business is doing and when people have a good sentiment then it goes up and when they don't it goes down mm. so you're in hong kong mm. you open up i'm guessing a laptop yeah phone you open up your phone mm. you see uh, a stock exchange chart just all in red. Yeah. What goes through your mind? Um, fuck. <laughs> it's actually what goes in my mind and then I'm trying to ring my stockbroker. Um, look, it was um, – it was – I kind of had in the back of my mind that the ride wasn't going to go on forever, um, but then the days after that got worse, right? So then it just went bang, 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 and so it ended up dropping about $100 million over the course of seven days. Um, and so, you know, you get um, – like conflicting advice on what to do, you know, do you put out announcements, do you not, the staff are nervous, you know, your partners are nervous, the board's nervous, there's a lot of conversations, you know, Um, and I guess at that point I'm like, well, there's nothing I can do fundamentally to change that situation or like all we can do is continue to run the company. Um, what, what was it like emotionally for you? Could you sleep? Could you eat? Nah, look, I I, um, I I started drinking really heavily or probably before then, but I started drinking really heavily over the course of that period and never I, – I, I was pretty much hardcore um, drinking for about a year. Um, couldn't sleep. I had heaps of problems sleeping anyway. I'm not the best sleeper in the world, but was getting maybe two or three hours sleep a night max and shit sleep. Um, and just pretty lost, 
to be honest. Um, not a lot of people you can turn to. Um, everybody sort of has their own views on what you should do. And as the CEO, you've kind of got, you know, you've got to be the leader and you've got to make some decisions. And so my first priority was to really focus on the business and go, look, the market's the market and, like, it's unfortunate. And I had to speak to our top five investors and sort of, you know, because you don't want to make the situation worse, so you need those investors to stick. Um, and you say, look, you know, the fundamentals of the company haven't changed. We're doing what we're doing. Um, and, yeah, so it was uh, it was an interesting period. And, you know, then it's probably the three to six months after that where, you know, the accusations start coming and everybody starts fighting and everybody just wants to do a portion blame. Um, and at that point in time, I, 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 at that point, I thought I suffered a heart attack, but I was sitting at home um, and just had massive chest pains. And um, my wife um, took me to Royal North Shore Hospital and they thought I had a heart, heart attack, but I actually had acute periocarditis, which is like a swelling of the sac around your heart. And I was in cardio for two days. They gave me a Nurofen, by the way, and it solved the problem. They thought everything. They thought I had blood clots. They thought I was a works. It was hilarious. And they, this this cardiologist said, take these two Nurofen and like, bang. I was 400 like, milligrams of ibuprofen. Yeah, and I was like, happy days. And I'm like, oh, man, this is the cheapest I'm getting out of hospital ever. Um, and at that point, I came and resigned from everything. I basically resigned from the board um, and and uh, the company and just I, – I, my wife said, you're going to die, right? So she goes, you know, you can't do it. Um, and I was suffering badly from depression at that point. Um, and I, I got worse progressively after finishing up with, with all of the businesses that I was working with. Um, but yeah, that was, that was the sort you, of. You worked, you worked so hard to build this thing. And this yep. thing is just like literally falling off the face of the earth. Yeah. Yep. And then you're faced. Was, did did you realize that you were in that much health difference, or did or I, was it your wife that actually had to say, I, Jamie? I was bad. Like, I, I, there's a photo of me at the listing, um, and there's a side on profile is like 135 kilos, um, with a glass of wine in my hand, and it's the worst I've ever looked in my entire life. Like, I looked like shit. And somebody showed me that photo, and I went, "This is just terrible." Like, I was eating badly, drinking heavily, not sleeping, not exercising, and I wasn't physically, mentally, or emotionally in good place. Right. Um, so physically, just just to be able to deal with that level of stress, just nowhere. Mentally, um, I was under siege. Right. So I was going through like the the swinging of like hardcore anxiety to hardcore depression. Basically, you know, depending on the day, and the only way I could deal with it was just to get absolutely trashed. So like the only way I could sort of solve, the only way I could get to sleep, and the only way that I could numb out was just to drink mm. and i did heavily yeah. um and so that sort of was just self-medicating and just was recipe for disaster because it just makes it worse um because then you wake up with a hangover feel like shit um you're more irritable less less more tired um and you don't want to go to the gym you don't want you want to eat food that's worse and then you just cycle repeat 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 yeah. And so the the day that you had this extraordinary chest pain, did you think, oh, it's, it's come for me? I actually thought uh, I was done. Like, and my body's been abused pretty heavily over that period of time. And so I was like, well, I was about, I think I was about 41, 42. I'm like, yeah, this is this is it. It's over, you know. I'm now a bit of a drama frigging, you know, hypercontract at the best of times. But I'm like, uh, yeah, this is it. Um, and, um, and you realize, especially you realize when you go, especially when you go to emergency and then they, they look serious and then you oh. go, Oh no, <laughs> no. And you go, Oh shit. Yeah. They go, no, nah, no, nah, you, you're all fine. You're just a you know, drama queen. I'm like, no, nah. 
I'm um, right. this is really serious. Yeah, like 130 kilo CEO who's just lost 100 and whatever million dollars, yeah. 298 million dollars off the stock exchange in his 40s. Um, yeah, you going out the back quick. I'm a, like, I'm a, I'm we're going like, to put you straight in the straight I'm, to the top of the charts. I'm man. in. I'm in a textbook. Yeah. So they yeah. Um, they, they they were lucky. Yeah. Look, guys who die of heart attacks. Yep, that'd be you. <laughs> yeah. uh, um, so look, I did was, you realize that? Did you realize that, nah, or was it? Nah, was it your man. wife who went, buddy? Nah. Look. look, I mean, I knew I was in a bad way um, mentally, um, but. Uh, it's it's uh, it's easy for me to say now, but then no fucking idea. Because it'd be, be it'd been working for you. No, this yeah. is the same yeah, behavior ab- that ab- got you hundreds of millions of dollars. Absolutely. So you go like, I you but start to believe your own bullshit, right? And you go like all these like I'm especially you know on the way up you're going holy shit like this I'm, I'm, I must be a genius you know um, even though I mean I wasn't that naive but you kind of go well it's been working okay I knew I was unfit. Um, and I knew I drank too much, but I'm like, you know, how bad? I'm not, you know, you're in massive in denial, right? Right. Um, and so, yeah, and, and I still didn't really, even after that wake-up call, I just went through this massive three-month funk of depression um, and just didn't get out of bed for three months. Tell me about the decision to quit. Um, I just got to a point, like I, I literally got to, I can't take it anymore. Right. And it was not just the physical, but it was just sort of, I got to a point where I'm like, I was lucky because if it didn't get to that point, I probably would have done something drastic. But I just, I just, one day I got another legal letter and I'm just like, nah. I'm like, I'm done. And I'd lip, it was, was probably not the most professional thing in the world, but I just went to save myself. Like, I just need a lifeboat. Like, like that was it. And I just had to like pull a ripcord, you know, and I, I had somebody who was, we were looking at for a, for a replacement, and I just I said, mate, like here's the keys, don't break it, <laughs> you know, congratulations. Um, I felt really bad, like letting the team down and a bunch of other things. But if I hadn't, I probably wouldn't be here. Um, no. Like, yeah, it was it was a point where you just go like, there's a I can't even describe it. I remember I was walking through the city and I just went no, nah. and I had I, and I gave up on everything. It wasn't just that business. I I basically stopped doing all work um, at that point. So you're describing a scenario that most people wish they had, you know, a, a successful company, you know, I've got founder shares, I've got, you know, guaranteed this much money in my bank account no matter what happens to this mm. company. I should be feeling fine. I should be feeling safe. But that's not what happened, is it? No. And um, I speak to, like, since then I've I've pretty much um, focused my work on looking at entrepreneurial mental health. And the thing is, is that, you ascribe so much of your self-worth as an entrepreneur to the success or failure of your business and it becomes you and and your name is synonymous with that business. Um, even though there are other people involved, there are other people making decisions, there's teams and everything, but it sort of is you. And so when it's going great, you're great. And when it's going bad, you're bad. And it doesn't mean that I didn't make mistakes because I made plenty of mistakes. And it doesn't mean that I don't make mistakes. I do. Um, but in terms of linking your self-worth and your happiness and your mental health to a business, it's a recipe for disaster. And it's hard to talk to entrepreneurs about that until they've had a moment because um, you can academically or intellectually say to them, look, you know, 
92% of businesses fail. That means 92% of entrepreneurs are going to experience a failure, and, and I think it's getting worse. I love that there's access to innovation and that we're democratizing the startup community, but at the same time, people are coming in unbelievably ill-prepared for what they're going to experience. And I think older entrepreneurs have have had some setbacks and have had some adversity, intrinsically know it, whether or not they can do it or not is partly challenged by the fact that they feel that the things that make them a success are those things. Right. And and so it's it's hard to convince them that, you know, by the way, you need to be physically, mentally and emotionally fit to be an entrepreneur if you're going to survive 20 years. You might get away with it for a little bit um, and if you've got some success behind you, you might be able to sort of smear over the cracks but the minute you come up against something really hard you're going to crumble but we're living in a world where two 22 year old kids start snapchat and then three a couple of years later are worth billions of dollars even as well i mean marry serena <laughs> william uh, he's read it the reddit guy marry serena williams you know and worth billions of dollars that can't do a lot for i mean you know, when when I was a young man, and, and seems like you were as well, like that path was, I'll go make a record. You yep. know, because back then it was a physical unit, and if, mm. even if I had a single, that was still a physical thing that people paid two dollars for. You sold a hundred thousand of those, yeah, you're doing all right. You yep. know, uh, and and so, you know, this idea of this is so attainable. I have a laptop, therefore mm. I can be a startup founder. Yeah. And I think that's a good thing. So, so I'm not down on startups at all. In fact, I think more and more of our economy is going to move to this kind of based working, right? So if, if it's either people moving out of the corporate world into small business, working for themselves or innovating through a startup. But, um, I think that we don't think about mental health the same way as we think about physical health. So physical health, you know, is to laborers like mental health is to white collar, you know, knowledge workers, right? And so, um, I've, I've started working with universities like Swinburne and I'm speaking to TAFE at the moment about how do – everybody's sort of doing entrepreneurial courses right now and, you know, entrepreneurial education has come a long way, but nobody's looking at the human component of that, which is how do you prepare somebody for the journey and then how do you support them during the journey? And so, you know, everybody's happy days and, and I, I've got a problem with the startup media is pretty much all about I'm crushing it. I'm, you know, Gary V and I, like, I love Gary. He's a great guy. But, you know, it's all about the hustle and you're meant to be working 23 hours a day and eaters, eat, leaders eat last. And, you know, this, this idea that as long as you've got, you know, something in the future that's going to make it all okay, that then you can burn the candle at both ends now and, and trash your health and, and not worry about, you know, sustainability generally. Um, and I think we're in for a huge crisis. Like um, for me, access to capital is more ready than ever. Um, there's been a huge democratization of, you know, access. And, you know, we are, the failure rates are the failure rates, you know, and anything that's innovative is going to have high failure rates. So that's that's a normal part of the process, but we're going to see a huge crisis of either founder suicide, depression, um, general wellness issues in entrepreneurs um, than like we've never seen before over the next twelve days. You mentioned the you mentioned the democratization and and access of investment as well. I mean, there was a time when only people it's wild to even think about it. Only people who had proved that they were smart enough to know what they were doing were allowed to invest in mm. the stock exchange because they didn't want mums and dads blowing their super on, yep. you know, 
Barry's prospecting company who's dug a hole out the back of Charleville and is promising that there'll be, you know, buy an ore in it. There isn't and then suddenly you're living in a caravan in your retirement. You know? mm. But now you're actually having these incredible, you know, extraordinary platforms where you can put tens, twenties, hundreds of thousands of dollars into a, uh, you know, a PDF that you've read online at 11 o'clock at night and you think, yeah, that's a good idea, click go yep. and then suddenly you've You've you know blown the kids' money, the kids' inheritance money on yep. on a you know I don't know like a widget that you thought was going to be the next big thing, Instagram like a new, a new coffee plunger that yeah. you know doesn't turn out to be the thing that ends up in IKEA. Mm-hmm. You know, so do you feel that there may be a similar crisis amongst investors? Oh, uh, look, I think that that's the least of our problems. So. Um, you know, whilst I think that there are people who are investing in the space that shouldn't be, um, both in public markets for sure, um, and I think privately less so. I mean, I think there's more sophistication in investors than ever. But um, I think the problem is that the the investment approach has been very much centred around the business and the idea. And yes, like I'll back that founder, but... Not a lot of people are asking the questions is, you know, how ready is that founder for the journey and how can we support them? So I speak a lot to the venture community about, you know, this idea of founder support and, and welfare where you go, okay, it's all well good and well to give a, a founder $2 million, $3 million, $4 million, and that's great and we're thankful for venture capitalists to do that. But what support do I provide them emotionally? What support do I provide them physically um, during the ups and downs? We know what what the environment looks like. We know it's a pressure cooker, um, and part of it is selecting the right founders. And you know how do you how do you sort of separate the founders that are more self aware from the ones that who who aren't? And you know you'd argue that the role models that we look at, like the Zuckerbergs and the Jobses and the Elon Musk of the world, aren't the most self aware guys on the planet. Um, and, and we sort of hold them up on a pedestal, but they're not representative of the large group of founders that we have. And so we've got this sort of disparity between people saying, well, you need to be like a Steve Jobs or an Elon Musk. But at the same time, um, you know, that's not the reality that founders are facing every day. So at, at the message that seems to be uh, in the, you know, certainly the, the young businessmen and women who are in university right now is – you know, you, you're never going to get a better time, you know, on the big final showcase night of this course to pitch investors. Here we go. This is it. You're on. Let's go. Um, and, you know, the the carrot, the dangling is that you could be the next Snapchat. You could be the next mm. uh, fucking, I don't know, whatever. Bitcoin. Crypto. Shit, man. You could be the next. AI. You could be the next crypto. You could, well, it was a Schedugram. It's yeah. an incredible company out of Melbourne that I, you know, that I use. They're amazing people. They're doing a great product. You know, you could be this explosion. But if there's 100 kids sitting in this lecture hall, only eight of you mm-hmm. will still be here in five years with, with this money. So the other 92 of you are going to face, yeah, you might. it might look initially like this is it. This is the dream. Yep. Here we go. This is what I saw on AngelList. But then it's not. So, yes, learn to code. Yes, learn business practices. What else do you need to learn, Jane? Yeah, so, and I, I couldn't agree more. For me, it would almost be better if those founders had failures earlier. Like, it'd almost like get a failure out of your belt, under your belt, like, and move on. Because um, the longer it takes for you to have your first failure, the more surprise it is. <laughs> and, I, and, I, and I don't want people to. 
um, embrace failure, but the reality is that they are going to fail. And so for me, um, the three traits that I think are the most important for entrepreneurs is um, how do you build resilience, um, which is an ability to essentially come back from adversity, you know, so and, and that, that's that's something that people don't even think about until they need it. Um, that's built through self-awareness. So, you know, how much do you really know about yourself and do you want to look in the dark places? Um, and, you know, unfortunately or fortunately, an, an entrepreneurial career shines a light on that because there's nowhere to hide. It's all you um, and and it exposes your strengths and weaknesses. And then lastly, you know, how flexible and adaptable are you? And so for me, great founders exhibit those three traits um, and they, they sort of look at building that resilience and they focus on building capacity that they can use later rather than capability. So a lot of founders for me are all like, okay, I need some skills. I need to know how to code. Um, but they've got no reserve. They've got no fuel tank. They don't eat well. They don't meditate. They don't think about radical self-inquiry. They don't think about energy management or their relationship with their phone and all of those things that, that for me make up I guess essentially a foundation of capacity that you can then draw upon at times of adversity. And if you've got nothing there, like you're going to wash out. And and I think that that's a shame for a number of reasons. It's 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 terrible that people lose hundreds of millions of dollars. It's there's a human waste to that. But I think as a society and as an economy, we want founders to come back after their failures. We want them to come back and have another go, learn from their failures and be stronger. Otherwise, we're going to drain the entrepreneurial talent pool in the country and people are going to go back to corporates and we're just not going to be innovative. The thing you mentioned about wanting to build, I'd love to talk to you about, we could talk for a day about relationships mm. to phones, but um, the thing that you mentioned, and I, I, there's a, a mate of mine who's a who's a founder and he's, he's extraordinary. We're having lunch the other day and we're having a conversation about and his business is, is, is going very well. Um, but the idea of that, as his investment grows, as his business scales, yeah, they've, they've got the office. They've got the, you know, they've gone from five people to 50, I think. Like it's, it's, it's going big. It's going fast. As the business grows, as, as, the, as things scale, he also needs to scale his capacity as a leader. Like mm. he's, he's, his job's not done. He still has to grow and still has to constantly work on himself Yep. Uh, to be of benefit. He's got to innovate himself as well as the company grows. Absolutely. And, and I think that founders invest in themselves last. They put themselves last. They, they, they are like, I'm going to put everything into my business. I'm going to put everything into my team, my product, the market. And, and that's encouraged. And, and, I, and I think that's great, but it's a really short-term approach. If the founders aren't taking care of themselves, then they have no capacity to be creative. They've got no capacity for building relationships. They're irritable. They're tired. They're quick to anger. Um, they are terrible with investors. And so I sort of say to founders, yeah, look, it looks like you're being really productive now working 23 hours a day and you're all about the hustle and it's all like we're all crushing it, but you should be doing less um, and really focusing more on that foundation. And so, you know, I don't take any meetings before 10 or 11 o'clock in the day now and I don't answer emails or do phone calls because I'm spending that time on either personal care around, you know, meditation, diet, exercise, or alternatively working on the most important thing that I can work on from a productive standpoint rather than having the outside world constantly acting on you to sort of – you know, hustle, answer emails, answer phone calls, everybody else driving the agenda. And so I see a lot of entrepreneurs who miss, 
identify sort of hustle with actually doing meaningful, productive work. And they think by being busy or, you know, I'm, I'm wearing a badge of honor that I've only slept, you know, four hours this week that they, um, you know, are, are, are a better founder for it, but actually long-term they're bad. So I love that idea of like not have, cause I, you know, I, I try to stay off my phone for the first hour when I wake up. But the idea that you're allowing someone outside of you to drive your agenda, it could be as simple as checking an Instagram or replying to a comment. You're allowing someone that you probably don't know mm-hmm. to tell you what you should be doing at that point. Absolutely. So the number one thing I tell founders, if you want to take one thing away, is develop a morning routine. Um, you know, a, a funny guy said to me once that if the first thing you don't touch in the morning is, you know, yourself or your partner, you've got something wrong, right? But my my um, my morning routine was to roll over, pick up my phone, read my email and go, fuck, right? And, and so from an energy mental state, you're pissed off. Um, somebody else is now inside your world telling you what you should do, right? And so they're driving you from a business sense, from a productive sense, and they're driving you energetically. And so protecting that time in the morning so that when you wake up and you go, okay, I'm going to do something restorative, whether it be meditating, whether it be journaling, which I do a lot of, um, or whether it be, you know, doing some diet or exercise, um, and then working on that single biggest, most important thing for whatever you're doing project-wise. And if you get that all done before 10 o'clock in the morning, the whole rest of the day can be a complete write-off and you still will feel amazing. Energetically, you've set yourself up, you feel great, um, you're not pissed off by the world acting upon you, you've got the biggest, most productive activity out of the way, and then if somebody's wasting your time, whatever, you're just going to be so much more patient, you're like, doesn't matter, or you could continue on and be really productive, but you're going to feel less resentment towards other people, you're going to be happier, um, you know, it's changed my life, really, which is just protecting my morning up until 10, 11 o'clock has been the single biggest impactor on both my happiness, my health, and my productive. But what about now, what you've just described, I think most people can get to until the 10 o'clock in the morning. There's a lot of people working 9 to 5. A lot yep, of people have kids' true. morning routine dropping off, you know, and then getting, you know, clocking on at 8.45 or 9 o'clock whenever they, you know, they get to work. But the idea that it, it might not be an email telling you that, you know, your market cap's just gone down yep. 75%. Uh, it, it might be a Facebook comment yep. on something you posted two weeks ago that the aunt you don't speak to anymore has gone all snarky on you yep. and suddenly, boom, your energy's changed and it had nothing to do with you. Yeah. All right. So that I'm sure people could, could relate to that. But how do you see that morning routine working in someone who might be in still in the corporate world? Get up earlier. Like, like uh, I'm not joking. Like for me, um, instead of 10, make it nine, right? Like everybody knows that how can it be good for you to roll over in the morning and pick up your phone? Nothing ever good comes from your phone. Nothing. Like, I've, uh, I, I, I don't know. I mean, for me anyway, I mean, but like when was the last email that you got where you danced for joy and went, this is the best email I've ever got in my entire life. Woo, I just won the lottery. Or when was this call, the call that you got at 7.30 in the morning from somebody saying, congratulations, Jamie, there's a Ferrari parked in your driveway. It doesn't happen. And so uh, entrepreneurs, I, I'm all about hacking, right, which is like how can I set myself up for maximum success? Because I know I'm addicted to my phone. Like I just know. So now it's not in my room, right? Like I just – the way I don't touch it in the morning is it's just not next to me, um, and that's the only way I can use it to remind myself because I'm I'm no like you know kind of preacher. I am just as bad as and addicted to the phone as everybody else, and I was just as bad in, in terms of you know waking up in the morning and not eating or not exercising or you know essentially be grumbling, wasting time on Facebook, Instagram, whatever, and just 
you just start the day unhappy. Um, and then other people reaching into your life and deciding what you should do is just ama- – it amazes me. Now, I was on that treadmill, trust me, but it amazes me that I can almost control other people by sending them an email and asking them to do shit for me, and they'll do it, like, and they'll do it as a priority. That's insane. Um, and so I look at founders and I sort of say to them, you have such – the biggest thing that you've got you know, that you need to spend is these resources that you have, which is your time, your energy, and, and the money. And, and startups are scarce on all three. And so how you choose to spend your time and your energy and the capital of the business is absolutely critical. And so being able to focus that both energetically and also onto the work that you're trying to achieve is, for me, how you become an amazing entrepreneur and founder. How do you feel now about going forward uh, starting something new? Do you feel do you feel in a good place about it? It's taken me ages, um, longer than I thought, about two years almost. Um, and every time I wrote, wrote the book and and putting that out, I've had to do a lot of PR. And every time I do anything in the public, there's always some you know troll who'll jump onto the Sydney Morning Herald and say, you know, this guy lost a heap of money or he's a dickhead or whatever it ends up being. And, and I've been really sort of hesitant. And, and for me, part of coming out and talking about my own mental health and my own failure is so that other entrepreneurs um, feel more comfortable talking about it and it destigmatizes it because there's still a lot of stigma associated with failure. Um, it's not something people are proud of, like, hey, by the way, I lost heaps of money. This is great. You know, you should invest in me. Um, it's not a great sort of CV builder. Um, but I think it's a reality. And so I've had a lot of founders approach me and say, I'm really glad that you're coming out and talking about it because it's allowed me to sort of think about the things and behaviors that I've been doing that will lead me to a similar path. Um, so I feel really good now. I'm probably in the best space of my life in terms of feeling healthy and energized. And I'm interested in putting that into practice and I'm, you know, doing work in the not-for-profit space around founder mental health. Um, and I'm interested to see what version four or five of me looks like in the workplace again, you know, and, and sort of have I learned from the same mistake? Have I learned from the mistakes and, you know, how can I kind of, I guess, test myself and apply the learnings to my next endeavor? The fact that you're so focused on telling your story and telling how, to be honest, Jamie, how close to death you were and losing not only losing money is one thing, but losing mm. your, your your family, your life, you can't do shit you know, without those things. Yeah. What made you want to talk about it? I, I didn't want to talk about it for ages and um, every time I did speak about it, it opened up new wounds um, and so... Every time I spoke about it, um, I was like probably not ready and I wasn't – I had to use the word healed because it sounds a bit kumbaya, but I wasn't fully healed. And so I sort of got to a point where um, I, I, I got asked by the Sydney Morning Herald to write an article about the dark side of startups. And um, I wrote that. It was a very cathartic exercise to actually sort of put it all out on paper and go, oh, shit, you know. And I got a really great response from that in terms of sort of touching a lot of people and them saying, do you know what? Um, I've been thinking about this for ages. It's affected my husband. It's affected my wife. Um, and just had a, a really, um, I guess, positive response to that. And that sort of gave me, I guess, more confidence to talk more about it and to destigmatize it. Um, and look, 
it's just one story, right? And there are there's, there's thousands of them, um, you know. And and I've seen a lot of entrepreneurs step down from their roles because they're suffering from bipolar disorder or or they're suffering from depression, and it's becoming more widespread. But also, I think the industry is becoming more supportive of it. Right. But what you said a, a, like a little while ago, you talked about the idea of if we support our founders and we support them with the resilience that they'll need to deal with both the ups and the downs, economically that benefits us all as a country, doesn't it? Absolutely. Um, and, and for me, the thing I, I, I hate seeing the most is that young, talented entrepreneurs who, you know, bust out on a particular idea and go, that's it, I'm going back to, you know, get a job at a bank or something like that. I'm like, no, you've got to pick yourself back up and, and go again. How do we put a support mechanism in place for those people, also experienced entrepreneurs as well, um, so that we, we – because I, I would, I'd rather invest in that founder than somebody who's never had a failure. Right. So I like, I love meeting founders who go, by the way, look, I had a founder come to a support group recently and say, you know, I've just lost all of my money and here's why. And, you know, and I'm like, I'll definitely invest in this guy's next deal because how much more self aware is he? And, you know, the idea that he can, I guess, dissect the, the contribution that he made to that failure as well as just learning from it is, is I think, invaluable. Yeah. Um, and I think the Americans are better at that, to be honest. I, I'm not a big fan, but I think they're better at looking at failure as a um, a growth tool right. than we are in Australia. Is that is that what we need to learn to do more as a culture? I think so. I mean, I think we need to recognize that failure is just one step towards, you know, success. In, in in the scientific community, that's the reality. We train muscles to failure so they become stronger at the gym. Um, you know, I, I'm not here to change the failure rates from startups from 92 out of 100 to 50. I'd love to, but the reality is, is that by very nature, being innovative means that you're going to deal with failure. What I think as a society is that we've created this veneer that everybody's crushing it and that I'm the only person failing and I'm alone um, and so I don't want to talk about it. Whereas I think we've got this cultivated, curated sort of veneer around um, the startup ecosystem that, you know, everybody's doing amazing, everybody's got funding, they are the next Snapchat, you know, it's only you who must be, you know, not doing well. Um, And that isolation tends to make it worse and so I want to break that down and talk about it. Because it, A, it's simply not true and B, eventually, like this is the way I look at it, Jamie, and, uh, you know, having spent time in in both Los Angeles and in you know, Silicon Beach, it ended up becoming while mm. I was there and then up to Silicon Valley, um, eventually us as a country, we are going to run out of things to dig out of the ground and Absolutely. sell to other countries, yep. all right? All we've got then is what's between our ears and what ideas we have and how we can execute them. And what the stuff you're saying now I think is so important, so important so that 20 years from now when we can't dig coal out of the ground anymore because no one wants to burn it because it'll fucking kill us all, which Mm. was 20 years ago, (laughs) but you know what I'm saying. We'll get there. Um, We're going to need something to keep our economy going. We we are. And and I start to talk to entrepreneurs about a 20-year entrepreneurial career. It's not about this startup. It's it's how do you look at entrepreneurialism as a profession, you know? And if you looked at a filmmaker, for example, and you said, well, you can only make one film and that film must be a blockbuster. So your student film must be the next Facebook and it must be, you know, amazing. 
nobody would create anything. And that's insane to think about a creative pursuit like, you know, your first song must be a number one or your first production must be an Academy Award winning film. Startups have a creative endeavor just like anything else. And so people learn their craft over time. People experiment. They make mistakes. And so I want to see a six startup veteran entrepreneur who's had a couple of failures and has had a couple of successes and survived them both, survived their successes as much as survived their their failings, um, and that they view entrepreneurialism as something as a craft that they're refining over time, um, and that they don't get burnt at the stake when they have a failure, or that they don't kill themselves, or they don't, you know, retreat back to the corporate world. That we foster that creative, innovative community, and that's partly teaching skills for sure. If you can't play an instrument, you're not going to write a hit record. Um, but at the same time, it's also, I guess. Um, popping the bubble that everybody who writes a song is, you know, the next, you know, you too, right? Just that's just not not reality. Hey, I'm so grateful you came around today. If only the stuff talking about phones and having people that you might have never known in your life controlling your actions in the privacy of your own home, like the way you reframe that, mm. man. I know I certainly got a lot, a lot out of it, and I'm sure people listening most definitely will, because we're all we're not all going to you know go and pitch up on Sand Hill Road and you know get five hundred million dollars you know of, of startup capital, um, but we all have that problem. Every person listening to this is listening on a, on a mobile device or, or a laptop, but every single one of us has an emotional reaction to something we read online, probably written by someone that we've never met. Absolutely, and allowing that emotional reaction to affect our day. And the people that we hold close to us, mm. it's it's frightening. It makes no <laughs> sense. It is something we can absolutely control, especially when you see the scientific research that proves if you scroll through, scroll through Facebook all day, you are going to be more depressed than if you don't scroll through Facebook all day. Absolutely. And um, and that's mate. I certainly hope that you know other people because the mom's sitting here going, I am not touching my phone. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so grateful you came around, man. Thank you so much hey, for the chat. My pleasure. It's been a real, real enjoyment. Cool, man. Thank you. Hey, thank you. That was Jamie Pride. His book is called Unicorn Tears. It's a book where you buy it where you buy books. Uh, you can find him on Instagram, Jamie Pride, J-A-M-I-E-P-R-I-D-E. Drop him a DM. Tell him you heard him here. Throw a comment his way. Tell him you heard him on the show. My guests always get a kick out of that. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for being a part of the show. If you want to support this podcast, the easiest way is to tell another person about the show. The next level up from that is to uh, throw onto patreon.com slash osher and maybe kick a couple of bucks our way once a month to, to help us keep the lights on here at Podcast HQ. Thank you very much to Andy Ma, my audio producer, for the editing and the production this week. Hayley Van Spagna for helping me and Jamie be in the same place at the same time. Toe Hider for making the great music. You for being here. If you need me through the week, you can find me on Instagram or the Facebook group. Come over to the Facebook group. It's actually becoming quite fun. Until we speak next time, do whatever you can to make sure that you sleep well and dream of beautiful things. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.